Welcome back to the Democracy is Podcast, presented by California Common Cause. I'm your host, Alexandra Leal. Last time, we introduced you to redistricting, the sometimes confusing process by which we draw district lines and determine who holds power in our cities, counties, school boards, and legislatures. Redistricting happens once every 10 years at the beginning of the decade, meaning it just finished. On this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into how redistricting went here in California. How did this redistricting cycle compare to others? What are independent redistricting commissions and how did they impact California and its communities? We will answer all these questions and more in today's episode. In our first episode, we covered the origins of redistricting, the battles for fair representation throughout the country, and what redistricting for California's state legislative and congressional maps look like. If you're into redistricting, you've probably seen the news stories about the redistricting of congressional districts across the nation. It is notoriously messy, with lawsuits flying left and right. Today, though, we're going to look at a part of the issue that usually flies under the radar, redistricting in California's cities and counties. A critical factor that differentiated this round of local redistricting in California from all prior rounds was the Fair Maps Act. The 2019 California law was an extra in our previous episode on redistricting, but today it's the star cast member. The Fair Maps Act put some rules in place for cities and counties to follow when drawing new district lines for their city councils and board of supervisors. Before the Fair Maps Act, local redistricting was the Wild West. Incumbent politicians could draw whatever lines they wanted to to protect their reelections. The Fair Maps Act made local redistricting more public, more transparent, and more participatory, and established line drawing criteria that should have meant that district lines were drawn to create fair, compact districts based on public testimony and the shape of communities on the ground. But did that actually happen? We had the chance to sit down and chat with Nicholas Heidorn, one of the attorneys and activists who led the efforts to pass the Fair Maps Act. In the state process, we had passed by initiative, the Californians passed by initiative Proposition 11, which moved the redistricting process over to an independent commission, but did a number of changes to around transparency, fair redistricting criteria. And what we kind of noticed is local had been somewhat left behind. Really, there hadn't been any major changes to local redistricting law in almost 80 years. And the same progress that we'd seen through reforming the state process, we hadn't observed at the local level. And so you saw a lot of uh, gerrymandering, so district lines drawn not necessarily to empower communities, but to empower politicians or political parties. Uh, In many cases, lines were drawn splitting up communities of interest, and particularly minority communities. And there just weren't many protections. And there really wasn't much of an effort at the local level to get people engaged, to start advocating hey, here's what our, our communities look like. Here's why drawing us in the same district uh, will help to empower us. And so the Fair Maps Act kind of took that as its premise, was that we needed to revisit local redistricting, try and create a more inclusive process, one where the public had more of an opportunity to be heard, one where communities could really come together and make a case for why they deserve to be kept in the district, and one that also adopted criteria that would hopefully lead to fair lines and outcomes that simply weren't about trying to empower incumbents or political parties. Now, of course, that all sounds amazing. 
But sometimes it can be difficult to understand what a piece of legislation actually looks like when it's put into practice. So I would describe the Fair Maps Act as having kind of three components. There's kind of a transparency component to it. There's kind of an outreach public participation component. And then there's uh, changing the criteria for actually drawing the, the lines component. And that means that local governments had real guidelines on how to handle their redistricting process. It worked really well. You know, local governments had more responsibilities for doing outreach to community organizations than they ever did before. Because of the Fair Maps Act, advocates like Nicholas began to witness some wins in local communities. In terms of how the maps got adopted, in some communities we saw real successes, real maps that empowered communities that had often been disenfranchised going back decades. Uh, we also saw some, uh, some jurisdictions that did a wonderful process, perhaps very transparent, perhaps uh, genuinely trying to seek out public engagement. But while many districts saw an increase in participation and some communities saw positive maps, that didn't mean that local redistricting was anything close to fully transparent or perfect. Uh, but, you know, redistricting remains a very politically charged process and sometimes protecting incumbents uh, prevails even over the written criteria that were in the law. Even though local redistricting isn't immune to injustices or bad politics, Nicholas still believes that it has moved us in the right direction. So maybe to take a step back, you know, redistricting has to happen every 10 years. Redistricting is the process of drawing election district boundaries. So for city council, county board of supervisors, or school district, all the way up to state legislature, Congress. It's drawing those lines to make sure all the districts have equal population. Trying to ensure elected officials are representative of their constituents. We're trying to ensure that elected officials are accountable to their constituents. And that's why it's so important to have uh, fairly drawn lines. And so what the Fair Maps Act did was it really gave new tools for people to be able to participate. Uh, as I mentioned before, it allows people notice for when these meetings take place, criteria that they can advocate towards, especially expressing what are their neighborhoods, what are their communities that should be kept whole, and criteria that are supposed to prioritize doing just that, making sure this process is about communities and less about politicians. For all the promise of the Fair Maps Act, some cities and counties still manipulated the process and ignored public input, showing us how the law can continuously be improved and how much work must be put in to hold power accountable. Let's look at some examples from around the state. First stop, Kings County, which engaged in one of the most heated and problematic redistricting processes of 2021. With a population slightly over 150,000 people, Kings County hardly seems like an obvious site for elaborate machinations around political power. However, Kings County is an important case study because it's a majority Latino county with a, only a single Latino person on its five-member board of supervisors. For those not familiar, the board of supervisors are the governing body of a county in California, much like how a city council runs a city. Rather than employ an independent commission like Los Angeles County and San Diego County did, the Kings County supervisors chose to redraw the district lines themselves. Incumbents drawing their own district lines is the historic way redistricting has been done and remains the most common way in California and around the country today. During the local redistricting process, there are two sources of new district maps those submitted by the public and those created by the Board of Supervisors and their map drawing team. While maps are submitted anonymously, community groups that have submitted maps can publicly claim them and advocate for them during redistricting meetings. 
Valley Voices, a group of activists and community members in the Central Valley, submitted and advocated for Map 101, or as it came to be known, the Valley Voices Map. Out of the five supervisorial districts in Kings County, the Valley Voices Map created Latino majorities in two, giving them an opportunity to finally elect greater representation to the county's governing board. The map was widely supported by the community, but only one supervisor supported the Valley Voices map, Supervisor Valle, who coincidentally was the only Latino member of the board. Community organizations and Supervisor Valle consistently pushed for the Valley Voices map to be adopted. This process was marked by intense animosity, with community members and Supervisor Valle accusing the board of being racist and the board responding by accusing community members and Supervisor Valle of being disrespectful. Despite the hostile attitude taken by the board of supervisors, the Valley Voices map was selected as one of two finalist maps. But during a critical public hearing, to the surprise of almost everyone, neither the Valley Voices map nor the alternative were selected as the final map. Instead, a little-known and little-discussed map called Map 120 was reintroduced during the final redistricting meeting and adopted by the Kings County Board of Supervisors. Members of the community were aghast at this decision, as was Supervisor Valet. Map 120 was an anonymously submitted public map with no discernible origin and, based on California Common Cause's monitoring notes, zero public support. While the intent of the Kings County Board of Supervisors will be a mystery to all but themselves, there are certain interesting differences between the Valley Voices map and Map 120. The Valley Voices map drew maps that kept communities whole and enabled them to speak with a unified voice in the county's politics and didn't consider where incumbents lived. As a result, the Valley Voices map moved one incumbent supervisor out of District 1 and another incumbent supervisor out of District 4 making them ineligible to run for office again in their old districts. Map 120, on the other hand, does not remove any supervisor from their respective districts, making it much easier for them to run for re-election. Also, the Valley Voices map creates more powerful majorities, like Latino residents, than 120. And of course, the final and arguably most important difference between the two maps, the Valley Voices had massive public support with dozens of people speaking out in support. We aren't aware of any public comment on Map 120 at all. At no point did a single member of the public register an opinion on Map 120 before it was adopted by Kings County. In the end, that didn't matter. And that illustrates how local redistricting can still be manipulated by those in power to keep themselves in power and how much work is left to be done to strengthen our democracy and hold power accountable at the local level. In some places, they took line drawing criteria that served their interests and put them at the top of this list. Above line criteria, the law said they were supposed to follow first and foremost. Next up, we take you to Pasadena. Early in the redistricting process, the city of Pasadena's advisory redistricting task force fixated on the idea of a quote-unquote minimal change map. This idea was introduced by Pasadena's contracted demographer, which suggested the city could draw district lines based on quote-unquote 
traditional redistricting principles that are not enumerated in state law. Those traditional redistricting principles are things like maintaining district cores that are essentially euphemisms for keeping new districts as similar as possible to the old districts, ensuring minimal disruption for incumbents. Pasadena's redistricting task force took this advice to heart. They requested a map that changed the district boundaries as little as possible, while also getting as close as possible to the maximum allowed population deviation between districts. As stated previously, there are limits to how different in population districts can be. Rather than try to make the districts as close in population size as possible, which in turn, of course, equalizes the electoral power of each voter, the task force instead chose to push the limits of what was legally allowable and have as unbalanced districts as possible. Now, you need to know some backstory. At the time, many residents of downtown Pasadena hated the existing district maps. Why? Every council member wants a part of the money-generating downtown area in their district, so they had split downtown up. When the downtown area needed to go to the city council to address a problem, they had no advocate who saw downtown as his or her primary responsibility. Instead, they had to take their concerns to multiple council offices. And things should have changed in 2021. The downtown area is a perfect example of a community of interest as described by the Fair Maps Act, meaning the law required the city to make efforts to keep downtown whole in one district. Despite consistent advocacy by residents and organizers from downtown Pasadena, the task force voted 10 to 1 to recommend the maximum deviation, minimal change map to the Pasadena City Council. Since the task force was only an advisory committee, this recommendation wasn't binding, but naturally, the City Council unanimously approved of the map because it served their interests. This almost pathological desire to keep boundaries the same was chronicled by the LA Times in an article titled, Does Pasadena's Rose Bowl Disenfranchise Voters? The Times noted that the division of downtown Pasadena is connected to the tradition of giving every council member a piece of Colorado Boulevard along which the Rose Parade is hosted. Demographers working for Pasadena were asked about this practice and its consequence of dividing the downtown community as well as Latino communities. What was their defense? Each district deserved to have a part of the economic center in the downtown area. Whether or not you believe that is up to your own judgment. But one redistricting expert described Pasadena as, quote unquote, ripe for a legal challenge under the Voting Rights Act. External analysis of the Pasadena Redistricting Task Force's work generally concluded that regardless of intention, the result harmed renters and Latino voters. This should be reminiscent of what happened in Kings County. Public input was not acted on because it did not align with the priorities of the redistricting body. Pasadena's use of an advisory council, however, is of special note. 
like with many local governments that used advisory redistricting commissions, where incumbent politicians don't draw the lines, but instead they appoint the people who do and get the final say, Pasadena may have used an advisory redistricting commission to do their dirty work for them. That is to say, they got the outcome they wanted, but distanced themselves from the process. This phenomenon is one of the many reasons that jurisdictions striving to create fair maps should use independent redistricting commissions, because advisory redistricting commissions are appointed by incumbent politicians. They have become a way in many cases to simply launder gerrymandering. Independent commissions, by contrast, are completely independent of the incumbent politicians and put the public in the driver's seat. Having taken a closer look at redistricting in two different jurisdictions, we're now going to speak with the people who do the hard work of educating community members about redistricting and getting them engaged and activated. Today on the show, we are welcoming two representatives from Communities for a New California, Annalisa Vargas and Ariana Marmolejo. They will be discussing what redistricting looked like in the Central Valley, the challenges, the wins, and the losses. The interview you are about to hear was conducted by one of California Common Cause's regional redistricting advocates, Kaylin Parache. My name is Kaylin. Uh, I am a regional redistricting advocate with California Common Cause. Uh, my name is Annalisa Vargas, and I'm from the Coachella Valley. I'm born and raised here, and I'm lead community organizer with Communities for a New California Education Fund. I lead a lot of our civic engagement program, our outreach and canvassing work. And I'm Ariana Marmalejo. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm the redistricting associate with uh, Communities for New California Education Fund. I'm transitioning over to being full-time comms manager now that redistricting is kind of wrapping up, but the last year I've been totally focused on redistricting in all of our regions throughout California. Awesome. Well, it's great to have both of you here. And do y'all want to maybe delve a little bit deeper into what CNC is and what a lot of their priorities have been for redistricting in the state of California at this time? Yeah, and the scope of our redistricting work, you know, in all those regions has really just been to uplift our neighborhoods, issues that are really present in them. And redistricting has been really a great opportunity to continue our work that CNC has done from the census and to just continue being counted in and just really uplifting our neighborhoods. That's been our whole goal. Um, it really started with pushing and asking for independent redistricting commissions, which did not happen in our region. So that just turned into really engaging the communities and educating them about what redistricting is, how it impacts them. And people were really, really fired up and got excited about defining their communities of interest, You know, being able to speak to that on such an important level and really see what the census manifests into and that, how that really kind of plays out and affects everyone else. So we've been really focused on uplifting all of our communities of interest. And we've had a lot of success throughout California on that. Beyond that, you know, we've seen some of the systemic issues that are in that. But it's been a really, really educational and impactful cycle that we saw a lot of success in all of our regions. But also just I think that all of our regions have been um, really incredible and I think kind of surprising because, you know, I think when you think of redistricting, um, people might not always think of it as, you know, super exciting or in the same way they think of elections. But I think there was a lot 
of energy and fire behind people standing up for their neighborhoods and really speaking to that. So it's really cool to see. Pretty fundamental things to people's day-to-day lives. You know, if you're walking to school, you want to have a sidewalk in the place that you're walking on. So it would seem like this is really straightforward stuff if a community wants to come forward and say, we'd like to be in this district because this council member controls this street and every day my kids have to walk on this street to get to where they're going to school. That seems to make sense, but you know, as I'm sure we can all attest to, sometimes council members and uh, boards of supervisors are not necessarily amenable to a lot of the things that people will ask for, that people will want. Indio and you know places like Fresno as well are honestly case studies of the way that you know these systemic barriers really pop up when you kind of don't really have that um, progressive legislation like the Fair Maps Act to protect different things and you know the common issues that. I think kept popping up. There was a lot of common threads throughout of it. And what I want to say misunderstanding about redistricting um, city councils and county supervisors were playing one ball game and we were playing another because it seemed like these electeds and the kind of the consultants they had were really operating off of the old paradigm of redistricting, you know, pre 2019 with the Fair Maps Act and kind of just operating you know, in that sphere where we were coming from a post-Fair Maps Act era where we're really prioritizing communities of interest and really leading with that, where a lot of times we'd run into these electives and they'd just be like, okay, we hear you. We don't agree with you and we're not going to do it, but like we hear you and it would just kind of end there. So that was a massive one just throughout California and these electives, like even though the Fair Maps Act was in place, the notion of the ranked criteria uh, allows room for, you know, these consultants and electives to kind of interpret it to the interpret these laws in a way that best serves them and kind of protecting incumbency and protecting the status quo of different regions. And we saw that a lot beyond just the kind of, you know, different interpretations of the law and, you know, what neighborhoods and whose issues were getting prioritized. There were massive language barriers throughout throughout all of our regions um, and areas that are like heavily Spanish speaking, like always have been and just either no translation services at all for meetings or, you know, terribly inaccurate translation services that, you know, either weren't real time for residents to meaningfully engage in the meetings or inaccurately translating what they have said in their comments, which is extra egregious when you think about how diverse California is, you know, beyond that, just (laughs) residents not even knowing redistricting was going on. Because again, it's this common theme of these electeds and these governing bodies really doing the bare minimum and just kind of like checking off a box saying like, oh, we did outreach. We posted on Facebook twice. And it's like, well, that's not meaningful outreach. And only a small number of people are going to see that. Thank you, Adriana. I know you did a great job summarizing um, some of those challenges. You mentioned it was like we're playing two different ball games and definitely interpreting the Fair Maps Act in a different way. And at times it felt, you know, at least in the city of Indio, that the city, the majority of the city council members were interpreting it to like their own benefit. And the consultants were there to protect incumbency rather than ensure that the Fair Maps Act was being adhered to and that they were following the ranked redistricting criteria. So, for example, we had city council members that would tell us like that only they could represent the community, that um, that we were not able to represent the community unless we had 45,000 in one community members with us. That's actually half the population of Indio. So that's why she referenced that number. 
which is ludicrous, but um, or other um, examples such as saying that our map that was created by the community for the community and really took into account to honor communities of interest, keep them whole, include economic centers in each district, definitely um, adhering to the VRA and complying with VRA and Fair Maps Act. And they mentioned that it was too much change, that perhaps in the future, that might be a good map. (laughs) But currently, it was not something that they felt it was too dramatic. So that, again, is not it doesn't uphold what we're following in the Fair Maps Act. It doesn't create any equity. It it, it makes us wonder about the representative and and about what the message that's coming across and asking them, like, is that something that you're telling us because that's just it's business as usual status quo? Or is it because it's coming from immigrant communities that are usually shut out of this process because they lack, you know, the translation services they need? Or is it because we're brown people or is it because we're folks that, you know, are not from the affluent neighborhoods of Indio and live in gated communities? So we want to make sure that our information, our input is being listened to. And even though they said we are listening to, we just don't agree with you. That is not enough reasoning. That's not a, that's not acceptable when you have so many like dozens of folks coming to you, providing public testimony, written testimony to advocate for a certain map that represents them um, and creates more fair representation and also being able to elect candidates of their choice. Yeah, thank you for that overview. I think that that really gets to the heart of that question and that almost eternal issue that you can see not just in the Central Valley, but essentially anywhere where you have redistricting. It is very difficult for the electeds to not prioritize their own incumbency because they're politicians. That is kind of what they're supposed to do. They run for office and they stay in office. If you task them with redistricting, then, you know, chances are they're going to want to redistrict in a way that helps. Do y'all think you would have encountered a lot of these same issues in Indio if, and I just guess the Central Valley at large, if it was independent redistricting commissions managing redistricting instead of these city councils? Aside from like kind of process issues like translation services, I would imagine, you know, seeing how much of an issue that is in these hearings, I would imagine that's more of a pervasive issue across, you know, all city meetings, which is also kind of horrifying to think about. Things like that, I don't know if are, you know, hyper specific to redistricting, but an independent commission may also be a lot more aware that that's way, you know, especially needed in these meetings. So even that, I think an independent commission would take so much out of it because again, the biggest themes of the issues we saw all throughout California was really just, you know, different things that essentially branch out and like stem off from just keeping the status quo and really protecting incumbents. I think, because I don't want to go too far down the dark route of things that went wrong or things that weren't great. What were some major wins that y'all saw? I mean, I know we talked a little bit about how the Fair Maps Act has massively increased people's ability to participate, but what are some wins that y'all took away from this redistricting cycle? I mean, which I wouldn't explicitly consider the biggest win, but, you know, just as an example there, I think Fresno County is, I think the general population is like 70% plus people of color. And our county board of supervisors, I think are four white men and one Latino. And that's just not reflective of who lives in Fresno. In the San Joaquin Valley and in um, the Coachella Valley, just the, the competitiveness of the new seat, it really just has created a lot more opportunity. Even though, you know, we did have some losses 
we saw how blatantly kind of our needs um, and the needs of our neighborhoods were just overlooked by these electeds and these legislative bodies at the same time that that was frustrating in a way that that was a, that was kind of a win because I think it just so clearly demonstrates to um, constituents where the interests of their electeds lie. And it really showed they didn't represent them in this process. And while that is kind of a negative, it really, really fired people up to continue to be involved beyond this because like, yes, these maps were adopted, but, you know, redistricting isn't over. You know, there's still a lot of work to be done, both from the maps that, you know, were adopted this cycle, but also just, you know, again, changing that legislation and keeping the conversation going for the next cycle. I guess in one respect, you can you can look at that and say, well, we got ignored. That really sucks. Like, yeah, but now more than ever, I think people are realizing the status quo that is there and that's being preserved. And they don't like that. And that's one of the most important, um, you know, ways to make change is people getting involved. And that's been incredible to kind of build our bases and rally people around that. But again, more wins of just, I think, I think are really great steps in the right direction. And again, people are listening and seeing a need for that. So, you know, to further that, just continuing that work and hopefully getting like some sort of blanket legislation that it just has to be everywhere. But I think those are all, you know, great starts. And there's, I think, a lot of great momentum that's been built in this cycle. All right. Well, I think that about covers it. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me. This has been incredibly enlightening. And I hope maybe this makes people realize more so now that redistricting is, I mean, yes, technically something that only happens every 10 years, but it's also every day in terms of its consequences. And we can at any time take the opportunity to actually engage in activism that might make the process of redistricting or our redistricts better. So thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you'll have a great day. It's easy to get disillusioned when you're looking at all the setbacks and injustices from the recent redistricting process. There were a lot of places where the will of the people were ignored in favor of political convenience, and hopelessness would be a totally appropriate emotion to feel. If not for the fact that we have the means to address these issues, Independent redistricting commissions have proven to be a reliable way to increase the likelihood of equitable outcomes in redistricting. As we discussed last time, an independent commission was used to do redistricting at the state level in California. And despite the fact that it had to draw 51 congressional districts, 40 state senate districts, and 80 state assembly districts, giving the public lots of opportunities to disagree with the choices made by the commission, California was perhaps the only state in the country to have zero legal challenges to the maps after they were approved. And independent commissions also work at the local level too. Of the 60 plus local jurisdictions that California Common Cause monitored in this redistricting cycle, the best five, meaning the most participatory, the most fair, the most transparent, and the most community-driven, were all run by fully independent commissions or almost fully independent commissions. To take two as examples, Long Beach and Escondido both used independent commissions to draw maps that respect communities of interest. Both of these cities were able to transcend entrenched political interests and started from the ground up, relying exclusively on community testimony and following legal parameters. 
the needs of incumbents were universally ignored and no mentions of problematic redistricting principles like minimum change were made. And as a result, no litigation has resulted. Independent commissions aren't a miracle cure, and they can have their own issues. However, California Common Cause has yet to encounter an independent commission that has gotten even remotely close to the levels of awfulness reached by cities with advisory commissions or no commissions at all. The issues that plagued Kings County and Pasadena likely could have been avoided if it was an independent commission and not the politicians controlling the redistricting process. It's as simple as not letting sitting elected officials write the rules that they have to play by. When we, the people, draw our own districts, we get good districts. Independent commissions give us that power, and California Common Cause sees the growing rise of the independent commission as a massive step forward in local governments. There's a lot of work left to do, and a lot of cities that still need to adopt independent commissions, but California is absolutely moving in the right direction. Thank you for listening to the Democracy is Podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed our show and that you'll join us next time for a new episode on a new topic. Research, writing, and editing was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupkov, Jose del Rio III, Pedro Hernandez, Kate M., and myself, Alexander Leal. A special shout out to another member of our team, Kaylin Perroche, who did all of the research for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.